Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. I'd love for you to open your Bibles or click into your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament prophets, and this message in our series of liberation is really a bridge message. It's going to take us from what we've been looking at these few weeks and get us into the New Testament uh, very quickly, where we'll spend the final two weeks in our series looking at the Gospels as well as looking at the overall view of liberation as found in our New Testaments. And as you're turning to Isaiah 49, uh, I want to remind you where we've been. We've been looking at how God has liberated people, and it's been one of these uh, telescopic, if you will, approaches. We've uh, bored in on one person's life and backed up to look overall at the Israelites to the wilderness. We've looked at the stories of successful liberation in Moses and uh, Joshua, David, and King Josiah. We've taken a few moments to look at some of those liberation moments that have not taken, like King Saul and then the kings that followed uh, Solomon as well as Solomon, and how sometimes we fight against God's liberation because it comes down to whether or not we let God be in control or whether we ourselves remain in control. And so this morning, what I want to be able to do is I want to give you a history lesson. And and I know right up front that for some of you, a history lesson is like, ah, yuck. And for some of you, are like, more, more, more. So some of you will be really happy and some of you won't. But there's a reason behind why I'm doing this. Because I want to introduce to you in the scriptures, in the, old, uh, in the minor and major prophets of the Old Testament, that God has done something within them. He sent these prophets to speak a message to his people, and you're going to notice some language and some imagery that God has consistently used throughout his prophetic messages to his people. It's going to remind you of what he told Moses, of what he told Joshua, of what he told David, of what he told King Josiah. It's going to remind you that God's liberating pattern is found in Scripture. It's an exodus for all of us out of our slavery into this liberated life of worship with him. That our slavery is self-induced. We've only brought it on ourselves. We've entered into this commitment to the things of the world, and God has to break us free from it. You see, the Israelites went to God, and they said, we want a king. We want the opulence and power of the Eastern kingdoms. We see what they have. We see what they do. We want what they have. We want to do what they do. And Samuel, the prophet, said, you have a king. And God says, well, let him, let him have a king. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when you put yourselves under the power of one person rather than under me. And everything God promised happened. Solomon created the wealthiest and most powerful government the Hebrews would ever see. And it all came crashing down. Land that God had given them for free. They ate from fruits and plants they did not plant themselves. They they lived in cities they did not build. God had given them all of this. And what did Solomon do? He gave away land in alliance with other countries. His people were forced into labor to accomplish his private passions. When he died, the, the 12 tribes were split into two groups. There were 10 that went north and two that stayed south. The the 10 that went north were Israel and the two that stayed south were Judah. And last week, someone came up to me in the hallway and said, how do you remember which of the 10 and which of the two? It's easy. Let me give you a a cheat code, okay, for the Old Testament. Israel has more letters than Judah, so Israel has more tribes. Does that make sense? Now you'll never forget that the rest of your life. I learned that as a freshman in Bible college. Now you can win Jeopardy one day and share the winnings with me, all right? All right, so the 10 tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah... 
and they were split and the United Kingdom was lost. Samaria became the capital of Israel and Judah, their capital was in Jerusalem. That might help you know why there was such a tension between the Samaritans in the Gospels and the people that lived in Jerusalem, why they hated the Samaritans. There's more reasons to that, but for the next 200 years, these kingdoms were divided, they were ineffective, they were corrupted, they were disobedient. They had forgotten the simple message that we have learned from the very beginning. If you listen and you trust and you obey, God is always a covenant-keeping God. We must become a covenant-keeping people. How do we do that? We listen to the words of the Lord, we trust in the character of God, and we obey what he asks us to do. And we also obey when he asks us not to do something. Israel and Judah would have to learn these lessons. You see, after Solomon's death, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were separated. They were in the perfect path between the kingdoms of Mesopotamia and the kingdoms of Egypt. And if you've learned anything in this series, in fact, if you're visiting with us this morning and you haven't been with us in this series, I'm going to want you to notice this, that as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see that these Hebrew people, the Israelite nation of God, has this strong tendency to continue to look over their shoulders at Egypt, almost wantingly desiring what Egypt once gave them. God is trying to break us free of this captivity. So here's the huge history lesson now. In 722 years before Jesus arrived, the Assyrians conquered Israel. Now let's take a little pop quiz here. How many tribes in Israel? Ten, yes. Okay, good. We learned something. I like that. Okay, so the Assyrians conquered Israel. In order to assure that this conquered territory would remain under their absolute control, they would go in and they would take the best and brightest of the Hebrew people. They would take our equivalent today. They would take the doctors, the lawyers, the professors, the the scientists, the minds, and the strategists of the Hebrew culture, and they would take them and take them into their towns, and they would inculcate them into their nation and their culture, and they would do all of these things. We might look at that and go, that's strange. If you've ever studied history, what did the Nazi party do to the Jews in Europe? but to take their best and their brightest and remove them from the nation so that they would hamstring the Jewish people living in Europe for years and years and centuries even. And the Assyrians did this. They would take the other people and they would spread them out in small populations throughout the land. They would divest or dilute the the power of the people living in the great Hebrew cities. And this is what the Assyrians did. And when the Babylonians later would conquer Judah, the two tribes, they would do another massive you know, uh, population dispersion. They would take some into exile and they would leave others, but they they would tear down their cities and make them live outside of the cities and they would do all of these things. And this is what God had said when you read in the Old Testament. This is exactly what God said would happen to people who would not listen, trust, and obey. That the land that he gave them would be taken from them and they would lose the blessing that he gave. And the conquest of Israel scared the people of Judah. You would have thought that these two tribes, seeing what happened to the ten, would have thought, huh, don't do that. But they didn't. They they went along the same path. And almost a century later, the Babylonians would come in. They would replace the king of Judah with their own king. And he would be a puppet of the state. And he decided, he saw that the Babylonians were coming. 
And he, his name was Jehoiakim. And he knew that they were coming to take his land. So he did the most amazing thing. God said, don't do this. Don't ally yourself with other nations. You don't need other armies to fight for you. I am your God. I have proven to you that I will protect you. Trust me. But they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't trust. So they did not obey. And Jehoiakim, of all places, decided to sign an alliance with what nation? Can you guess? Egypt signed a pact with Egypt to protect. And God said, there you go, there's your protection. And the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar in 597 BC, came in and took over the entire city, raided and tore down the temple, took the Ark of the Covenant and all the beautiful possessions away, never to be seen again in the land. Because the people of God have a tendency to want to stay in control instead of trusting God who's in control. This is the story of the Old Testament. And before we stop and go, those silly people, church, it's our story too, isn't it? It is so hard to trust that the God we hear is the God we should trust so that we might obey. And in that obedience, find a covenant relationship we get nowhere else. You see, it's been said, and I found this recently, uh, Alistair McRoberts and, and uh, uh, Andrew Wilson, I'm sorry, uh, they're doing a treatment of this concept of how the exodus of God is themed throughout scripture. It's been very instrumental in my understanding of this and coming to discover it. And one of the things they pointed out in their book that I thought was fascinating, they said, when, when nations go through great periods of warfare, there's three ways they look at it. First, they look at it nostalgically. And if you want to just look at the films from the 40s, 50s, and 60s about World War II, you're going to see a perfect example of a nostalgic look. In other words, we won, they lost, we must be good, so they must be bad. That's a nostalgic look at war. I remember one time watching a war film. It was a John Wayne film. My, my family loved those. And we'd be watching this. And my dad pulled me aside one time, saw me becoming like just seduced by this whole good guys versus bad guys. And my dad explained. He said, go talk to your grandfather about war. My grandfather fought in World War I. And when I tried to talk to my grandfather about war, he said, I don't want to talk about it. There was nothing good. He didn't have a nostalgic opinion. He had a realistic opinion because he lived it. It wasn't what the movies put up. You see, the winning side gets to tell what the story was, even though it may not have been what the story was. But the people who, who fought in those battles need honored, need respected because of the sacrifices they paid for our freedom. We can look at it nostalgically or we can lament. And a lot of times you'll see that when there's no real winner, People wonder, was it worth it? All the investment, all the sacrifices, all the real lives lost, and we look at it regretfully. We, sur we survived, we prevailed, and we put up memorial walls and war cemeteries, and we have moments of silence because our hearts hurt at the cost that was paid for these endeavors. But when you read the Old Testament, God calls us to do something different. Not to look on our journeys nostalgically or even to be full of regret and lament, God calls us to do something that's really kind of fascinating. It involves looking back. It's to remember victories as the hope of our future. And we're not talking about victories that we fight in battle. We're talking about looking at what God has done and seeing that the God who did it then is alive and well today. Can I have an amen? If it's based on our power and our control, there is no guarantee of victory. But when we place our trust in who God is, that he can deliver, then we can look back and see the faithfulness of God all the way back from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land, and you and I can invest ourselves in this truth. That God who delivered them will deliver us. He can and he will. 
And this is what the Old Testament prophets, if you pay attention, you're going to see that each one of them gets us to look back so our feet can stay solid today, to remember the faithfulness of God, to remember that the God of liberation, you see, Israel needed to learn to worship the God of the Exodus and not just the results of the Exodus. And when we celebrate the God of the Exodus, the results are guaranteed. When we celebrate the results of the Exodus, we can be looking back to Egypt and trying to figure out how we could have done it on ourselves. So here's two points I want to make this morning. Number one, God delivers us through our past. I look back at my life and there's many choices I've made I wish I could change. I used to say when I was a young man, if I could go back and change five minutes of my life, I know the five minutes I would change. At my age today, if I could go back and change 60 minutes of my life, I know the 60 minutes I would change. How about you? A comment I should have made and didn't, a comment I made and shouldn't have, something I did thinking I would never get caught, something I wish I had done because it was the right thing to do and I passed on it. I can look back with a lot of regret on my life, but I also realize the faithfulness of God in each and every one of those moments allows me to understand that what I learned from my past allows me to go forward with promise. I want to take you through the minor prophets, and we're going to do this rather quickly. I'm not going to assume you know a whole lot about the prophets. They're called the minor prophets not because they're insignificant. It's because they were speaking in a specific moment at a specific time to a smaller audience. The major prophets are more universally applied to all the people of Israel, but these prophets would go into towns. They would go into places. They would speak to a specific audience at a specific moment in history. You take the Old Testament story of Hosea. Now, God did something to Hosea that all of us should be grateful he didn't do to us. God said to him, you're going to marry this prostitute. She's not going to love you. She's not going to care for you. You're going to have children. And I'm being a little bit facetious, but you're going to name the children. He doesn't love me. I don't know them. They don't care. This is the kind of family he was in. And God said, you're going to experience what it's like to love Israel. God says, I'm going to show you through this example of what it is to be the God of Israel who's rejected for his love and his compassion and his concern while the people prostitute themselves to every other God that might give them some satisfaction. And in the midst of all of this, I want you to listen to how God talks to Hosea about who he is. Out of Egypt, I called my son says in verse one of chapter 11, verse three, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Four, I bent down to feed them. Verse 11, they will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declare the Lord. God is using Exodus language through Hosea to remind the people. Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph, who wasn't even born when they were brought in to Egypt. But now that he's been born in the land of Egypt, he said, I taught him how to walk. Even in captivity, God said, I was there for you. In the, in the Old Testament prophecy of Joel, Joel will celebrate that Egypt's future desolation and Israel's future prosperity are in the hands of God, not in the hands of people. He's telling them, yes, you are going to experience slavery in your life. I will be the one to free you. Joel chapter 2, verse 16. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before the portico and the altar. Let them say, why should they say among the people, where is their God? Then the Lord was jealous for his land and he took pity on his people. Verse 20, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing into a parched land and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. Do you see the imagery of the Exodus? 
God says, your enemy will pursue you and I will drown them on either side of you. I will take them in the waters and I will control it all and I will deliver you. God says, I am still delivering you. As I delivered your forefathers, I will deliver you if you will what? Listen, trust, and obey. Jonah. Jonah knows this story. Now, Jonah's a different take on the the whole deliverance uh, issue of the exodus and the Passover and the providence of God. Jonah knows what it is to be delivered, swallowed in the belly of a fish and vomited up on the beach. And God says, now, will you listen? Will you trust me? And will you obey? And Jonah had no problem trusting God. In fact, the reason Jonah rebelled in his self-righteousness was he knew who God was. Look at Jonah chapter four, verse two, and one of the most famous lines of the entire story. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. <laughs> I love, this is the worst criticism of God in scripture. You're too nice. You're too faithful. You're gonna love people I don't love. That's why I don't wanna trust you. I don't wanna obey you. But he did, and God's faithfulness was displayed. In Micah, Micah, Micah centers his entire appeal to the people of God on the Exodus, on the leadership that God provided them, and the righteous acts of God. Chapter 6, he says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. Chapter 7, As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Who is a God like you, Micah says, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Do you hear it? God says, you are my people and I will deliver you. And Micah says, what kind of God do we have that continues to deliver such an obstinate people from the slavery they chose for themselves? And then Habakkuk, he shows us that God can be relied on. How? By the way God acts. Habakkuk chapter three, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leaders of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. What does that remind you of? The Red Sea? Egyptians' army being washed away? The great battle warriors wiped away by the hand of God without a single assistance from Moses, Miriam, or Aaron? God is the deliverer. And then the last one I want to point out is in the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. He promises restoration in a language that reminds you of something you've seen before. Zechariah 10 Though I scatter them among the people, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive and they will return. Listen carefully. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon, and there will not be enough room for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued, and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down, and Egypt's scepter will pass away. He's telling a people about to be disciplined at the hand of God. I do not forget my children. I do not stop caring about my children. What I do is to gather your attention. It is to call you to remember who I am, your deliverer, your liberator, your protective God. In other words, it's happened before and it can happen again. Church, do we believe that? 
Do we believe that the God who once delivered always delivers? This is what we're called to. It is the journey of faith we're on. It's to hear throughout scripture that we should not be surprised that God is faithful. And what he's doing is for a purpose greater than we understand in the moment, but always delivers us out of exile. The major prophets. I just want to focus briefly this morning on three of them. We're going to end up in Isaiah, so if you wonder why I had you turn there, we're going to get there. In Jeremiah, he spends his entire ministry warning is, or Judah rather, that they are about to be taken into a foreign land. Jeremiah is pointing out that the 10 tribes of Israel had been taken into captivity and he's warning Judah, pay attention to how they got there. And he's warning them from doing this, but of course, we're not really good at paying attention to anyone else's condition but our own. And so Judah does not listen. <clears throat> Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 16, however, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites out, uh, up out of Egypt, but it was said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. God tells Jeremiah, tell the people this, we used to say, isn't it awesome what God did when he brought us out of Egypt? He said, but your generation is going to say, isn't it awesome what God did when he brought us out of Assyria? and he brought us out of Babylon. Every generation has a deliverance story to tell if they will allow God to deliver them. In fact, it's even one of the most beautiful passages if you just wanna write it down, you might enjoy Jeremiah chapter 31 because God says, and the covenant that I'm keeping with you is going to be new. God doesn't change who he is in the covenant, but he says, I'm no longer gonna write the law on the tablets and give you pieces of stone. I'm gonna write them on your hearts and I'm gonna write them on not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, and my word will abide in you, and then you will be able to listen, to trust, and to obey. Ezekiel is a fascinating one. If you wanna read one of the weirdest books in the entire Old Testament, read this, the book of Ezekiel, and basically envision it this way. Ezekiel has a vision where a huge transformer comes out of the sky and teaches him about God. That'll get you the context. But the story of Egypt is so fun. When I discovered this in some of my research, it was fascinating. Like Moses, Ezekiel receives a vision from God of a, in a fire to go tell the captive people he has a message for them. And he goes as a prophet to an idolatrous people. He brings plagues. There's a Passover event in chapter nine. He's, he's a, a prophet of the divine presence. And like Moses, he gives them instruction for worship and how to follow God. He's calling them as Moses did. God is doing it over and over and over again, calling us to remember who he is so we can be freed. God delivers us through our past. He's showing us who he's been so we can trust him today to be who he is. And God delivers us from our past through his faithfulness, through a deliverer. Turn with me to Isaiah. Let me give you the background and we're gonna to get to Isaiah 49 here in just a moment. His prophecy contains a promise. There's about three or four different books depending on how you break it down. Isaiah has 66 chapters. It's basically probably three or four different sermons or prophecies, if you will, over the span of a large period of time. He, he promises that God will liberate the people from Assyria. He then promises that God will deliver the people from Babylon. 
And then he says, and the way that God will deliver you from Assyria and Babylon will not just be your flesh being delivered, but he will deliver us from our sin. And this is when we first hear the messianic prophecy of how God is going to do this. And this is where the faithfulness of God, this is this bridge story where now you may wonder, why is he telling us this? Now you'll see why. We look back to our past to remember the God who was there with us so that in each and every step we might go forward. He calls the people out from the captivity to themselves. Isaiah 49, verse 15. They're inclined to think that God has forgotten them in their slavery. God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are ever before me. The city's been torn down. It's been destroyed. Isaiah himself sees the captives go away. And he calls out, God says, do you think I can forget you? Do you think I've given up on you? Like the the father in the story, the prodigal son, who stands on the porch every morning looking for his child to return. The heart of God is displayed here. And when it says he, he has engraved our names on the palm of his hands, I wonder if that engravement doesn't look like a spike. He says, God says, I'm going I'm to redeem you with my own life. Chapter 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depth of the sea so that the redeemed may cross over? Tell the stories, church. Tell the stories of God's deliverance. Not just of the past, but of the deliverance of today. The world needs to know that God is not a disconnected God. That God is not sitting looking to smite those who make him angry. We have a God who pursues us like a mother pursues a child. Constantly, always seeking our best. Always calling us to trust him and follow him so he can lead us out of our slavery into life. In Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10, God begins to show us the means in which he will go to provide this. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Do you remember the theme? The outstretched arm and mighty hand of God? It says God is going to bow up. God is going to flex on this world and they're gonna see who he is. Verse 13, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Chapter 53, Who has believed our message? To whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? Here's the question of the morning. Who believes that the God who delivered uh, the Israelites out of Egypt can deliver you out of your slavery? Who believes this? How does he do it? Well, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. God says, I am going to deliver you in a way that you don't imagine. The person I send, you wouldn't even notice him. He's not like King Saul, tall and handsome and beautiful. In fact, he was average. No one noticed him. He was just a guy. It was God walking on earth in humility with meekness and power. So what did he do? Verse four. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we were healed. 
God says, I'm not only going to deliver you from your physical enslavement, I'm going to deliver you from the, sla- the sin that enslaves your soul so that you're not looking over your shoulder back to Egypt, wondering if the old life wasn't better than this life. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering, prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What do we just learn? God has been leading up to a moment in time that Isaiah would proclaim the gospel for one of the very first times. Back in Genesis 3, God said that your your child, to Eve, he said your child will step on the serpent's head and crush his kingdom, but he will be bitten while doing so. He will be poisoned by the serpent unto death. And Eve had no idea what was to come, and neither did we, but generation after generation, God said, have I been faithful to you? Have I cared for you and provided for you? Each generation gets to answer that question. Some will say, I don't know. It's because you're not paying attention. You're not focused on the things that God is doing. And should you focus your attention on God, you're going to see his deliverance. And we have a story to tell that he not only delivered us from this earthly enslavement, but he's going to deliver us into his presence. Remember, the exodus ends when the presence of God becomes our treasure. So God sent Jesus to all of us question is, have you let him? Have you opened up yourself to him? I asked you last week, have you ever taken a knee in front of Jesus? Have you ever gone before him and bowed and said, you are my king and I am your servant. I give my life to you because I trust you. I've heard your voice. I trust you and I want to obey you. I asked you last week if you've ever done that. I'm going to ask you today a different question. Will you today again remember who God is and take a knee in front of him? And bow yourself to the mercy of this God, the great deliverer who sent his son to prove to you on the cross who he is. To to choose today that God will be your God. God will be your only deliverance. That through Jesus Christ, you will receive the gift of life so that you can walk and not only find your own liberation, but have a story to tell to generations of the great liberator. In the back of the room are two tables that have lamps lit. And there are some people heading those tables right now. Maybe today's the day you want to be prayed for. Maybe you're struggling with being liberated and being freed. And you want so much to trust this God I talk about, that we sing about, that we pray to. Maybe today's the day that you want to pray for someone you know. Maybe it's someone in your family or someone you care about deeply who will not open their eyes or minds to the great liberator. Maybe today's the day that you want to, for the very first time, take a knee to King Jesus and give your life to him as he's given his life to you. If today's that day, go to these tables. There's going to be people back there to talk with you and meet with you and maybe step out into the foyer and have a seat and a cup of coffee and begin a conversation that will change your life. Maybe you just want to be prayed for. Don't let this moment pass that you don't take a knee in front of the greatest king ever our liberator. Let's stand together.
Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.